The views expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy, position, or endorsement of the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So these sticky ideas, those mantras that you can center yourself on, your kind of basic beliefs. First of all, I think we should all ask ourselves daily, do I believe in what I do? Do I believe every day? Do I believe in what I do? I believe in what I do. I believe in what I do. So I'm a skeptic by nature, but I believe in this. I believe that American values require muscle. I I believe that Army values require muscle. I believe that people are counting on us to do our duty every day. I believe that in a dangerous world, defending the Constitution of the United States, those powerful ideas that were captured over 250 years ago, and protecting, securing this country, I believe that's powerful. So I believe in what we do. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey, everyone. I'm Cal. I hope you are fired up for episode 64 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. Our goal on this show is to help you become the type of leader that other people love to follow. Today, you are in for a treat. And I don't say this lightly, but the person that I'm talking to today may be the most inspiring army officer that I've come across. Today, at the end of this episode, you're going to be ready to run through a wall after hearing my conversation with Brigadier General Pat Work. If you're new to this show, first of all, thank you for being here. We release a new episode every two weeks. And my hope is that at the end of each episode, you walk away with practical tips and tools that you can use as a leader right away. And if you want to make sure that you always get episodes straight to wherever you listen to podcasts, just hit subscribe. Me personally, I only listen to the podcasts that I tend to subscribe to. So please hit subscribe so you get all of the future episodes that we have. A lot of exciting content coming out this year in 2021. I want to give a special thank you to all of you that have rated or reviewed this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us grow. We continue to grow in the U.S. and internationally. More and more leaders are coming to this show to grow. And, and that means so much to me. So thank you for, to all of you that have rated or reviewed this show. You just, just takes a few minutes going out of a podcast. And if you don't mind leaving a written review, I'll be sure to read that on the show next episode. Also, please consider becoming a patron of Intentional Leader. You can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters to become a monthly patron. You can give a dollar, five dollars a month. All any of your support helps us grow. Our passion on this show and in this community is to help new leaders. That's our that's our that's really our focus is to help new leaders. We think that as leaders across society, especially new leaders that are entering the the realm of leadership, we think that as they get better, that society gets better. So consider partnering with us financially. Even a small contribution helps us carry out our vision to close the gap in leadership education across the country. Also consider joining the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. This is a place to get resources, debate leadership ideas, share struggles, problems, and ultimately to grow. It's a private group for leaders to converse with other leaders. You can find links to our Patreon page and to the Intentional Leader Lab in the show notes of this episode. 
Today's sponsor is Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders. Doesn't that sound good to have leaders in your organization that are resilient and are adaptive? It'll help you modernize and enhance your processes, and it will help you implement transformational technology solutions in your organization. If your organization wants to get to the next level, or if you personally want to get to the next level, visit higherechelon.com to connect with the amazing team at Higher Echelon and learn more about how they can help you and your team get to that next level. I'm so excited for you all to hear my conversation with General Work. He's so inspiring. He spent time at the Ranger Regiment. He commanded in combat numerous times, including service as a brigade commander in Iraq during the peak of the fight against ISIS. General Work was also the aide de camp for the Secretary of the Army, and he was the executive officer for the 39th Chief of Staff of the Army, General Mark Milley. He also played football at West Point and was an incredible football player back in his day. For show notes of this episode, just visit calwalters.me. And without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brigadier General Pat Work. General Pat Work, so excited to have you here today. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Cal. Thanks for having me. So we are we are over here in uh, Gavin Hall, and I'm meeting with, as I've already mentioned to, to you guys in the audience, General Work is the Deputy Commanding General Support of the 82nd Airborne Division. So it's a privilege to meet with you in person. And I learned about you, well, I learned about you through many ways, but one of the ways was through Dr. Joe Ross, and I've had him on the show a couple times, so he's a, he's a known to a lot of folks that are listening. I wanted to ask you, though, and that's related to football, so I wanted to start there. There's a lot of places we could start, but I want to start with football. When did you get into football? You played football at Army, but did you start playing football at an early age? So, Cal, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I started playing football when when I was a small child but I didn't play tackle football till I was a freshman in high school so my father wouldn't let me because so my father's an offensive line coach right so this is like the the height of neurosis right the reason he would not let me play not because of safety but he thought the coaching was poor he said only when you get to high school will you get quality coaching so he would literally coach us you know, he raised us from when we were pups. He taught us technique. He taught us angle tackles. He taught us to play downhill. He's the one who worked on our field work, worked on our hands. And then by the time we were freshmen, he thought that the coaching would be quality enough where he could loan his kids out, trust his kids to other, you know, adults. And that's literally what drove my father. So that's a different story than a lot of people. But I started playing freshman uh, football in Watsonville, California back in 1987. But I was kind of spring-loaded for it. It's what I always wanted to do. It took me about two practices to get the hang of it, to figure out that this thing, you know, you, you, it's a rough sport, right? You're going to bang people up. Yeah. You know, it's a physical sport. It took me about two practices before I figured it out. So, yeah, my dad, we grew up calling him Coach Work. And to this day, occasionally it still slips out. So, yeah. <laughs> what stuff. position did you start at? I was, a, I was a quarterback my freshman year in high oh, okay. school. Yeah, and then I played linebacker and then – you know, I kind of ticked off my coach my sophomore year, so he threw me out of linebacker. So I went down and played defensive tackle and offensive guard and uh, went from quarterback to guard. That's something else, ain't it? And then uh, my junior linebacker, senior year linebacker fullback. So I always I always thought of football. I, I grew up with a bunch of tough guys, and uh, football was kind of a thing we could do in the neighborhood that would sort of get you street cred and respect, right? So 
the guys in the neighborhood that I grew up in in Central California, they played tackle football without pads. That's how we did it, right? And that's how you got that's how you got a little respect in the neighborhood. You know, you'd be the first second pick in the tackle football games with the guys who are a lot older than you. So that's that's kind of how I grew up and then I had a severe fracture in my collarbone my junior year, so I didn't do that anymore. And uh that was kind of a unique thing about our neighborhood though. You know, the tough dudes in the neighborhood, if you didn't want to fight them, you played football with them. Hmm. Literally. That's wow. how we roll. Yep. Looking back, what do you think you learned most growing up playing football? I'm talking pre-West Point. What do you think were some of the biggest lessons you learned playing football growing up? Well, I think uh, football teaches you to prepare. Um, but it's not all about preparation. Ultimately, at the point of decision, you got to make a play, right? No matter what, it's always going to be fourth and one for somebody. I think football teaches you about sudden change. You know, the sort of thing that we do in ground combat where it doesn't really go your way. You zig and you zag and you get surprised and you get ambushed periodically and then you get shelled by heavy artillery periodically. Uh, football prepares you for sudden change. It prepares you to reset yourself, reload yourself very quickly and solve problems. So I think uh, I always appreciated that from from the from day one, uh, the passion for preparation you know, any spectacular achievement starts with unspectacular preparation. It's just work. And that's a lot like what we do today, right? So I have a passion for the preparation. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing, too, I think you got to do your 111th. You know, it's truly a team sport. No matter what you do, no matter what level you're playing at, you got to fit into the scheme of the defense, and you've got to make the plays you're supposed to make. Do your 111th. I mean, I walk around here in my mindset. I don't talk about it much anymore. These aren't the words that come out of my mouth. But as a one-star general, 26 years removed from getting commissioned, I still walk around thinking, do your 111th, you know, and you got to measure up every play. And by that, you mean do your part of the 11 person team? Yeah, you team. got 11 players on yeah. a field, you know, there's 11 players on the offense, 11 players on the defense, 11 players on the special teams. Everybody's got a role to play. Do your job. I mean, it's the essence of mission command. A lot of us get it twisted. A lot of us think mission commands rolling your own in this dramatically decentralized fashion. No, the only reason you can dramatically decentralize is because you have competent people that you can trust to do their jobs at the point of decision. That's the that's the foundation for all of this. Competence. Do your one eleventh. Play your role. Make the plays you're supposed to play. Uh, make make the plays you're supposed to make. So, I think that ethos. And then my father's kind of neurotic, you know, exacting. Uh, you know, his, his passion for technique, doing it exactly right, doing it exactly right every time. You know, an offensive line coach, and it, it takes one to know one. Offensive line coaches, everything is uh, about inches. Everything's about a step here, a step there, you know, being on balance, off balance, picking up an assignment, adjusting uh, out in space when you're blocking. And, uh, you know, I think it, he and, and there's a passion for anonymity you have to have as a as an offensive line coach as well. No, no one really thanks the yeah. line coach, right? You just do your job. Yeah. And so we picked up some of that from coach work, you know, and that was a pretty good thing in our family. And my younger brother's a a lieutenant colonel who's promotable to colonel in the army as well, and he's had a real nice run. He started right here at Fort Bragg in third of the five hundred fifth back in nineteen ninety four as a private in HHC in a mortar platoon here at uh, Fort Bragg and you know, went on to get commissioned and he's been going strong ever since as well. But I think we picked up a lot of that from an offensive line coach when we were young. I want to unpack something you said about competence and mission command. I think there might be a lot of leaders. First of all, I'm curious if you can just give like a cliff notes of what mission command is because for the folks that aren't familiar, but second, 
you talked about competence. There might be some leaders saying, look, I can't control how competent my people are, or I don't have highly competent people. I need to micromanage. What, first of all, brief synopsis of, of Mission Command, and then can you just maybe speak to that leader out there who's thinking that? So Mission Command, in plain English, this is, you know, so everything I'm saying here is really just my two cents. None of this is the division's position, the Army's position, none of it. So this is just me sharing the way I see the world. And I found that if I can't explain things, uh, so much of what we do is communicating with clear, clarity as a leader. And here's how I'd explain Mission Command. If we understand what the boss wants, something that we in the military would call commander's intent, if we understand the broad framework, the broad goals, the left and right curbs, if we understand what the boss wants, and then everybody can do their job at their echelon, it's no secret that the military is hierarchical, right? You've got a platoon and a company and a battalion, and eventually the, or, the organizations and formations get very large. So if you understand what the boss wants, the commander's intent for an operation, and everybody can do their job at their echelon. It gets back to doing your 111th, competence. Then you just got to get the right information to the right leader at the right time so we can make decisions when it's uncertain. So my simple definition of mission command, the way I describe it to people, if we understand commander's intent, we're empowered. If everybody can do their job at their echelon, we have a chance. And then if we have the mechanisms and the signals, the communications in place to get the right information, the right leader at the right time so we can make decisions when it's uncertain, then we could probably dominate because we can get the right information, the right leader, everybody's competent, and we understand what the boss wants. That is powerful. That's the secret sauce. When it's running well, there's total alignment from the top down in our Army's organizations. Okay, and I've seen it a few times where down to the street level, you can trust because people are competent. And they understand what the boss wants because he communicates consistently, persistently, and clearly. And then we've got the comms architecture, the communications, the signal, the, uh, the kind of sig signal infrastructure in place that we can actually get information to people who need it, not just stare at televisions, not just dance around the maypole informing each other, but get the information down to the point of decision where we could do something with it. Um, so it's powerful. And that's how our army's supposed to run, the way I just described it. What do you do when you don't have, quote unquote, competent people? Okay, one, you don't lead yourself. So this is kind of a maximum on leadership that I'd offer everybody should. You don't lead yourself. And if, you, if you're hoping to lead yourself, you know, you should really recognize that your perspective ends at the tip of your nose. So the Army's not made up of people. It is people. And they all come from somewhere believing in something. They all come with their own talents, their own propensities. Certainly we make choices. They volunteer. They're free men and women who have volunteered to come do this. We should respect that. But they all have their own range of talents. For some of them, the sky's the limit. But that's the rare elite talent. Most of them, most of them are probably talented enough. So how do you take the talented enough and help them achieve their potential? And I'd suggest that uh, for every single individual that we lead, if we don't approach them as individuals, we're going to miss it all. There is no one-size-fits-all you know, uh, kind of development plan. Number one job of leaders is to make leaders. So the first thing that we ought to do is trying to understand who we're dealing with, right? We're people trying to lead people, influence people, and we're trying to serve people. Everybody's got a boss in this business as well. So the first thing is to recognize who's got game, stretch it. Your, your folks with the most talent, you should keep the rise over run steep. Keep the learning curve steep. Stretch them. Groom them. Pull them along with you. The middle third, 
you probably need to pull them with you too and take some of your most elite and throw them down in the, stick them in that middle third as well. Help them help you, right? Activate your network of elite talent to bring the whole thing along. And then, you know, wherever, you know, kind of the rest of the team, I mean, they've got, you've got a duty to develop them as well. But I do think you got to be realistic. You got to be practical. You got to understand who you have, give people opportunities to excel. But at the same time, you know, we have a responsibility to stretch people a little bit too. And in this line of business we do is really hard. I think just inherently, you know, to be an A minus in the army is it takes an enormous amount of energy, exertion and effort and expertise, really. I mean, I've been working hard at this for a long time and we'll never be good enough. I love that idea of you don't lead yourself. I think that just highlights how, you know, every person's different. You got to get to know your people. You got to get to know what motivates them. I think that's a really great mantra. I want to move to mantras. Uh, let's go to mantras. Let's go to mantras. Let's go to mantras. So, so I was, I had the privilege of, of watching you speak to a class at West Point, which was so cool. I got to watch you do it over MS teams and, and sir, I'm not saying this cause you're sitting right here. I mean, you have a real gift of connection and speaking to people and motivating people. And one of the things that came up, you may have actually joked about this, about how you, there's some people that talk about workisms and, uh, and you talked about mantras though. You talked about principles perhaps. Um, and so first I want to ask you from your perspective, what is the value of a mantra? So these sticky ideas, those mantras that you can center yourself on, your kind of basic beliefs. First of all, I think we should all ask ourselves daily. Do I believe in what I do? Do I believe every day? Do I believe in what I do? I believe in what I do. I believe in what I do. So I'm a skeptic by nature, but I believe in this. I believe that American values require muscle. I I believe that Army values require muscle. I believe that people are counting on us to do our duty every day. I believe that in a dangerous world, Defending the Constitution of the United States, those powerful ideas that were captured over 250 years ago, and protecting, securing this country, I believe that's powerful. So I believe in what we do. And it's difficult, it's dangerous, it's dynamic at times. And so, you know, I kind of have realized that these little sayings, quips, these things that I could recenter on when the pressure's on very easy. And the army gives us very powerful ones as well. I mean, this isn't new news. It's not cosmic. We all do it. Again, football coaches do this all the time. That's, I mean, this is, I'm just doing what football coaches do, right? These are some of the most entertaining guys you have because ultimately leading is teaching in many respects. Coaching is teaching. So you really got to hold people's attention. And so I was talking to some guys, uh, Cal, the thing you mentioned is they were kind of making fun of the workisms. I'm saying, guys, you missed the point. The fact that you're talking about them is the point, right? And none of this is new. I've just stolen it from everybody else. So, you know, Tennyson said, I'm a part of all that I've met when he, in Ulysses. I'm a part of all that I've met. I've just taken the best I've heard al- along the way and kind of made it my own. And I think the Army Regulation 600-20, the Army Regulation, gives us a very powerful one. The commander's responsible for everything that happens and fails to happen. Think about how heady that idea is. Not only what's actually happening, but for all of the sins of omission. Commander's responsible. Doesn't say the first sergeant's responsible. Doesn't say the street-level leadership's responsible. Says that commander. One name on the front door. That's a powerful mantra for the massive responsibility we have when we're in command of soldiers in our army. You know, I, I think do what's right, do what the boss wants, do what you want in that order. You know, if you always do the right thing, 
then you always do what your boss wants. And then you realize it ain't about you. You do what's last. You know, I picked that up from Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling when he was my brigade commander 20 years ago. Do what's right. Do what the boss wants. Then do what you want in that order. I think move to friction. This idea that leadership is really just about going to problems. You know, if you can get an entire organization activated, mobilized to just move to friction constantly, because there's plenty of it in a people business in particular, just go solve problems. You know, that's Marty Schweitzer, who as a brigadier general taught lieutenant colonel work to move to friction. Okay. So, you know, you take that with you. Okay. And, and these guys would be very proud that we're so real quick about. on that. What does yeah. that look like? Can you give us an example of maybe what that might look like in your daily life, moving to friction as a leader? Okay. Just think of the practical matters when you have 18,000 people, some of whom, some of whom from the first thing we do in the morning, which is exercise, physical training at six 30 every morning, raise the flag. I mean, the army's full of routines. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's the same things over and over and over, recurring events. So if we raise the flag at 6.30 in the morning, and then by 7 a.m., we've got a couple soldiers who cannot keep up with the run that we're doing at the pace we're doing, okay, then there's some friction. We need to develop them. So I'm moving to it. I mean, that's, that's a problem. We want to bring them with us. So we need to do something differently to help them become more fit. Okay, so let's go help them. That's an example. Hit fast forward, we get into the day and we're solving some complex problem for this division where, well, we got an issue with some land that we wanted to train on. Those, that piece of the forest isn't available. Okay, I'm a major. I'm going to go solve that problem. I'm going to move to friction. My vehicles are breaking down. I really need to fix my maintenance. Someone's calling me saying, hey, I got a problem down here. Great, we're moving to it. So I'm not suggesting that we're just firemen. We're not. But there's an attitude, an ethos, an instinct to just move to friction in a very personal way when we're responsible for these precious lives that we are, um, when the relationships get distorted, when people aren't treating people well, when we uh, are wrong each other. No, not no, I'm moving to friction. We're not going to do that, right? And on the other hand, um, if you need help, right, we should never underestimate people's ability to struggle or their need for help. Oh, you need help? I'm moving to you. I'm going to help you. So if you just think of the human condition and people struggle, okay, we should help them. That's moving to friction. People make honest mistakes and we should forgive those. I'm going to move to friction. I'm going to make sure you learn from it. And then sometimes people do the wrong things, right? We should never wish away evil either. I'm moving to friction. Um, So it's really just mindset and it's about spine. I have an instinct at this stage of the game. I know if it's going to be uncomfortable, I know I have to do it. Okay, of 26 years of serving in uniform, I know that if it's uncomfortable in my life, I know I got to do it. I know if it's, I know if it's going to, my instinct is to move to friction. And, uh, you know, Brigadier General retired Marty Schweitzer, you know, he, he offered me that because I was kind of moved to the sound of the guns. It's the same sort of attitude, right? Go to the problem. And as a leader, does that mean, I think that's really helpful, sir. And I, I love the idea too about moving to discomfort because I think a lot of us, that's just human nature. I don't want to have that tough conversation. I don't want to, I don't want to move to that problem. I want to ignore it, hope that it goes away. So I would think that's really helpful as a leader. Are you solving the problems or are you, you know, when you move to friction, what, what's kind of going through your mind? What's your filter for, would you solve the problem yourself? Are you delegating it? How, how do you kind of tell the leader, once I get to the friction, what do I do then? Okay. So the first thing that I, I always try to do, and this is kind of, so you got this sort of dial between eyes on, hands on, uh, it, but it's somewhere in there. It's 
eyes on or hands on, right? So when you get there and you diagnose it, the first thing is you need to frame the problem. Many of us move with such alacrity, so misguided, the energy is going in multiple different directions. You know, the fundamental question in life might be, what are we trying to do? You know, what problem are we trying to solve? What question are we trying to answer, right? That's good. So I, you can always count on me. And I've learned this. This is not new news. Colonel, I mean, Brigadier General retired Mark Odom taught me this when he was a colonel on the joint staff. He said, look, if you really want to be a good colonel, frame the problem and then get the team organized to solve the problem. So I, I, I have no new material. I really don't. <laughs> it's good, though. Sir. I don't. No, but I just, I, I literally, yeah. I'm, I'm a part of all that I've met. Mm-hmm. And for 26 years... I've been kind of on this journey to try and be, you know, the leader that soldiers deserve, try and, you know, achieve my potential. And another thing Coach Work and my mom taught me was, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? Do your best. Again, I ask myself every day, did you believe in your work? Do you believe in it every day? Um, I love that. Yeah. And I I think it's a a powerful uh, reminder that, you know, when we don't believe in what we do, um, maybe it's time to try to find something else. Um, did you do your best? So that's Hyman Rickover. When Rickover was running, you know, his big question when he was, when he was running selection for nuclear submariners, did you do your best? Did you do your best every day? That was one of his central questions for interviews when he was selecting uh, these kind of uh, ensigns to come to the nuclear sub Did you do your best? Did you do your best every day? And president Jimmy Carter tells a powerful story about how he was struck on his interview with Rick over that his, his answer was, no, I didn't do, I didn't do my best every day when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy. So I do think that, you know, none, none of this is really caused. These are very basic, um, but brilliance in the basics mm-hmm. is kind of something that I think is worth striving for. Do you, do you go, I'm just trying to, because I can picture being in a difficult situation and then going to a mantra to center myself. Right. Uh, is that That's how the you, whole point? Is that how you use them? Okay. Right. That's the whole point. When the pressure's on, how do I deal with this problem? See, we all reason by analogy, right? Analogies can be dangerous or they can be powerful, right? So the whole point of uh, being a fighter pilot in stressing and stretching yourself with realistic training is at the speed in which the enemy's acting that you can move a little bit faster because you can think a little bit faster. That's kind of the point, right? And if you think of the speeds and the geometry with which fighter pilots engage, um, they have mantras too, right? And this is John Boyd's OODA loop, right? Can I observe, orient, decide, and act? fast enough, the OODA loop, and just do that over and over and over and do it faster than him. So he's feeling pressure and I'm not. Observe, orient, decide, act. And in life, much of what we do, I think, uh, particularly soldiers, I think we underestimate just how valuable, how important our minds are, how much we get paid to think, how much thinking through things and not just, we tend to be, we tend to see ourselves as kind of action guys rather than you know, really understanding you know, the, the reality is someone like me really values your mind. We want you to think. We want you to frame problems. We want you to solve problems. We want you to organize teams and then reframe the problem, mm-hmm. right, and continue to adjust. Because uh, ground combat's largely about whoever can adjust first, best, and most consistently in ground combat will typically win, much like that fighter pilot who's, you know, observing, orienting, deciding, and acting continuously in a loop. That's so good. Sir, any other mantras that, that you want to share that we didn't get to? 
I mean, I got so many of them. You got to ask the guys down there. They they make fun of me all the time. They write them down all the time. I mean, I've got them for war fighting too. You know, yes. Yeah. Uh, General David Rodriguez, when he commanded the 82nd Airborne Division, I worked for him here, and I worked for him at ISAF Joint Command when I was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, Rodriguez would say, "I want the the two, the three, and the six. The two, the three, and the six. So Rodriguez's point is, I've got an intel officer who does military intelligence. He's supposed to help me make decisions. I've got a three or an operations officer who's helping me solve problems that the enemy's presenting. And But I need my signal guy. I need my six here. Otherwise, the whole thing fails. It goes back to what I told yep. you about mission command. we got to be able to get the right information, the right leader at the right time so we can make decisions. This whole thing we do, when you talk about General Donahue, the division commander, he's really a professional decision maker. Mm-hmm. You know, his job is to make decisions, you know, because he's always in command. He's not always in control. If you think of an enormous organization, this is kind of mission command, this idea that the thing so big, you might be in command, but out of control. Yeah. You can't control it, yep. but you can command it. Yep. You can move resources. You can prioritize things. You can issue orders. You can change priorities. So you're always in command. You're not necessarily in control, though. The higher you go up the machine, the more command you might have, and control certainly gets looser. Whereas down at the street level where the sergeants are, control's big, but they're not in command. So in command, out of control. It's another way that I like to, again, a mantra kind of a sticky way of describing mission command. I'm in command, out of control. That's so. That's consistent with what General Votel said. I asked him what what was their biggest takeaway from Secretary Mattis, and he said this idea of command and feedback yep. instead of command and control. And I think that's very helpful. Um, I want to go to, sir, uh, leadership and combat. So you've deployed many, many times. Uh, you most recently, I don't know if it was your most recent deployment, but you were the brigade commander fighting against ISIL, uh, battle, battle of Mosul. I want to ask you about that, but more than anything, just kind of generally speaking, what, what has combat taught you as a leader most? So when this idea that we get paid to think again, Rodriguez taught me, he doesn't outfight us. He outthinks us. Okay, so I'd offer you that, and I made this comment earlier, whoever can adapt first, best, and most consistently is going to invariably put more pressure on the other guy, Uh, which is what it's all about. It's about dominating him at the point of contact, overwhelming him. It's about making fights unfair, okay, because what we do is really like blood and bone. It's extremely violent, and we ought to come to grips with that, just the harsh realities, the violence of combat, and what, what... Ultimately, an army does in sustained ground campaigns, battle after battle after battle to take terrain or destroy the enemies in front of them as part of a joint force. Um, It takes extraordinary courage and endurance. So if you just go back to this kind of idea, the brilliance and the basics, you got to be you got to be extraordinarily fit to inoculate yourself against the stresses of combat. So you really do have to practice misery. You have to become comfortable being uncomfortable and you got to train yourself to do that. And we can train ourselves to do that. I mean, you and I grew up on a football field doing that. I mean, you're really preparing for that fourth and one, right? The, the second thing I'd offer you is that uh, this kind of idea that just do your 111th. If, if you prepare them and you kind of get them into the ring and you're more like a boxer throwing jabs, setting up punches, if that's how you think of your subordinate forces is the, you know, those are my jabs so that I have time to think. They're buying me time to think so I can set up my right hand 
You know, that's our job, right? So, you know, if every time your left foot hits the ground, you're thinking about the fires you can call. Every time your right foot hits the ground, you're thinking about how you can fight your machine guns. Much of this is done before you meet the enemy in battle. So the preparation it takes to be ready, again, spectacular achievement is preceded by unspectacular preparation. Do you pay the price ahead of time? Are your soldiers prepared for the crucible, the unforgiving, the violence, the high explosives of combat? Because you can't get them ready once it's happening, right? So you really do owe that to them. It's a moral obligation we have. Additionally, I think you can share your courage. If you studied Churchill during the Battle of Britain, Churchill was convinced that he could teach London to be courageous. So this term, encourage, I mean, what does encourage mean? I mean, it literally means to give someone courage, to share courage, right? So, I mean, I tell people all the time, if you haven't met somebody who needs encouragement today, then you're probably talking to people who don't have a pulse. We all Hmm. need it. Yes. Right? So how do I encourage people? So when they do their jobs well, how do you praise them? Because different people are going to respond differently to the violence and the stress of war. So how do you backstop that? If you happen to be someone who's steeled against it, someone who deals with it well, someone who's able to kind of lock it away somewhere in their mind and don't go in that closet very often, you know, that's kind of how I think about fear. How do you, how do you act? And Pressfield wrote a book called Gates of Fire, and I'd encourage people because it's very practical lessons about ground combat. It's obviously about the Spartans. And it's about the crucible they go through in the agoge when they raise boys to fighters in the phalanx. But then it's, and there's a powerful character in there named Dionikis. And Dionikis is kind of the lieutenant that runs the agoge. And Dionikis teaches the young Spartans that when it comes to fear, when it comes to loss, you, no one gets used to personal loss. It hurts. But lo- find a closet in your mind and lock that in there. And then once in a while, if you have to and you're alone, let it out but then lock it back away and make sure you can always lock it away. And that's what Dianiki's, and that's kind of how I describe that, you know, how you deal with the stress, how you deal. And, and I learned it from a book, you know, this is kind of, okay, yeah, that's a good way to explain that to people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you study Churchill in the Battle of Britain, you know, this guy's defiance of the Luftwaffe in Nazi Germany, I mean, it's powerful, yeah. right? I mean, he was John Bull. He was the stiff upper lip. He was the thing, the sole piece of energy the source of it that held it all together. And uh, it was just courage. And he thought it could be taught. They'll watch what I do. They'll follow me. Because they know tonight someone in London's going to die, but the chances of it being them are very, very small. And I got to remind them of that every single day. And he got through it. And uh, I think to encourage people is powerful. There's very practical things, right? Um, what we do is obviously very violent. And um, Professor Huntington called our profession the management of violence the professional soldier, the professional officer. It's the management of violence, right? That's what we do. No one else does it. Um, It's a unique expertise. It serves the greater good, and there's something corporate. We can only teach each other to do it well enough. So if you think of the management of violence, that's a massive responsibility as well. Yeah. So our former chairman, General Dumford, you know, he used to say, can I, should I, must I, when he's talking about violence. Can I do it? Should I do it? Must I do it? Three different ways to look at your choice to shoot or not, for example. Um, Some of the simplest things. It takes tremendous imagination. We talked earlier about analogies and how we all reason by analogy. And if I can go to my, these kind of photos in my mind, these mantras very quickly, imagination matters in war too. 
If you can image your way through an operation, if you can sort of imagine it before it unfolds and imagine the physics problem of movement, imagine when you need to set triggers to really deliver the weapons where and when you need them. Our best fighters have tremendous imagination. They're able to learn from their examples, other people's examples they've read, they've prepared, and they can image their way through a fight. And when you can image your way through a fight, then coordinating it, integrating it, synchronizing it, is so much easier, but it starts with imagination. Um, some call it visualization. I like imagination because it sounds like it all, I mean, very few of us see ourselves as visionary, but many more of us are probably have an imagination. So how do I, I try to imagine unfolding day or night. Then see it unfolding hot or cold, see it unfolding wet or dry, you know, just see it unfolding. What has 47 years on God's earth taught me? What has 26 years in this profession taught me? How do I image my way through this, right? And then the final thing I'd say is I go back to, uh, you know, something very simple that I think is a core ethos for any soldier that's worth his or her salt. Um, This idea that you have a responsibility to others, not only for others, but to others. And, uh, you know, the third stanza of our Ranger Creed, never shall I fail my comrades. Never shall I fail my comrades. And I say a little prayer. I call it Sam Damon's prayer. People will recognize it maybe from Once an Eagle. Sam Damon, who's certainly not a religious guy, certainly not a devout guy. In fact, he's very complicated. He utters one prayer during that entire story, a thousand pages. And his one prayer is, Lord, let me not fail them. And that's powerful. If you're driven by your sense of duty to others, that they're counting on me, that my work really matters to the outcome for us. Um, you know, that's not different in combat. It's not different than the preparation for combat. So, you know, that's just kind of my two cents. Um, war fighting and the people I've worked for uh, have taught me a lot. It takes tremendous will. Ground combat's not for the weak willed. No, ours is a very unforgiving business. That's why you need to encourage people. That's why you need clarity. And that's why you need to ensure that they understand that, you know, what we do, um, you know, it's not for the weak willed. You know, soldiers ain't made of ice cream. <laughs> Right. I mean, we get paid to fight mm-hmm. and dominate. Mm-hmm. I love hearing you talk about encouragement because I think there are a lot of people that think of that as weakness of, of, I don't, I don't need to be encouraged. Um, but I love hearing it coming from you as someone who's led so much in combat, who's a football player, super masculine, just the idea but that, Hey, I know that you're a human being. And if you're a human being, you need encouragement and that's a leader's responsibility. I think that's, it's great to hear that coming from you. Well, think about our people, Cal. I mean, we've got free men and women, literally free men and women who choose to do this during a very long war. And there's no guarantee that this war is going to go our way. You know, there's no automatic, there's no birthright. There's no God-given writ. There's no guarantee that any of this goes our way. And the one thing history will teach you, even a surface level understanding of it, there's no permanent winners or losers. You know, so we, it takes people like us. It takes real exertion by people like us. It takes people like us who have dedicated their lives to this cause, you know, securing this country, protecting this constitution, ensuring that our way of life survives. I mean, it's free men and women choosing to do this. We should respect them. Yeah. We should thank them. Yeah. And we should encourage them and shame on us if we don't. And I, most people I've met in my journey, I mean, I've been shaped by people who have taught me this, right? 
I mean, there's nothing new about what I do. I copy others. <laughs> I've just been really blessed. I, I want to ask you about one of your mantras that I failed to ask you about. And you've already mentioned it, but just the, this idea that the army is not made up of people. It is people. And I heard you use that the other night when you were talking to West Point and you, and you talked about what I, the, what I took from it as part of it was being present with people. You mentioned not walking by someone, taking a moment to, to, to ask them their name, ask them about their life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I just, that really resonated with me. And I think that would resonate with a lot of leaders out there. I was blessed as a major to work for the secretary of the army, the 20th secretary, a guy named Pete Guerin, who's one of the mm. most decent men that the army's ever seen. Mr. Guerin was tremendous, but he was a 58 year old man. You know, when I was probably 34, 35, he was infinitely more experienced than me. He had such a better perspective on the way what is, is, and why it was that way. And, uh, he used to write these dynamite speeches. And so he'd go back and study what former chiefs had said and so forth. And, you know, I mean, I, I still, I mean, it's all stolen. None of this is new. The army's not made up of people. It is people. We've got a former chief of staff who said that about 40 years ago. And Mr. Guerin used to walk around and kind of use that sometimes when he was making remarks. I do think this, that uh, people need leadership. People want leadership. And leadership at its core is a relationship between the leaders and the led and that group of people, that team, and the purpose that propels them, whether it's winning a football game or dominating ground combat. And it's people who do the work of the army. People do the fun stuff in the army. People do the tedious grinding stuff of the army. And people do the deadly work. Okay, it's people who bleed to defend this constitution. And we should respect them for that. And we should thank them for it. And these precious lives that we're responsible for, I mean, if you can't get jazzed about young people, their energy, their enthusiasm, their commitment to come do this, if you don't fight every day to compete for their minds, to compete for their souls, to deliver what they're looking for, to meet their expectations. I mean, I'm telling you, this is what General Donnie does every day. He's on a quest and he's trying to bring 18,000 people with him. You know, I mean, it's, you get a choice on whether you're going to follow or not. But this guy takes this division in leading our people very seriously. So, you know, it's kind of infectious, right? But we got to teach people to be like this, to be very intentional about it, to be very, so I call it, you know, I do a four minute drill. Let me talk to you for four minutes and get to know you. Never walk past a soldier without saying hi. And certainly sometimes we're in a hurry, but that shouldn't be the norm. The army's not made up of people. It is people, right? And these people want leadership and these people want a relationship, which is the leadership. And the people need a relationship with their purpose. And for us, we've talked about the purpose a couple times. So, you know, it's, I'm trying to be careful talking about this because I don't want to sound sanctimonious and I certainly don't want to sound like I, I've got some uh, cosmic ideas or some answers to some tests. I really don't. I mean, I just trying to be honest here and tell you how most of the people I've worked with that have made an impression that I haven't forgotten, you know, what, the, what they've done to, to help me along. Well, let me ask you about self-management. Um, you, you've, like you mentioned, you've been doing this 25 plus years. How do you, how do you stay sharp? So I try to stay sharp. Okay. First things first for me, I accept that I'll never be good enough. Okay. I'm never content or satisfied. I always want more. I always want to compete a little more and I'll be honest 
we shouldn't be afraid to say we're ambitious, but I think I'm small a ambitious. Um, it's got a lot to do with your motives. It's got a lot to do with what drives you. What drives me is, Lord, let me not fail them. Never shall I fail my comrades. Uh, you know, I've got to be ready. There's people counting on me. So I know I'll never be good enough. And I also know I've got an example to, or I've got a responsibility to, to present a good example. I frequently ask uh, our young officers how many dynamite majors they've met. And this is kind of, for those listening, this is kind of the middle management 10 to 12 years of service for our field army, for the, for the operational force, the guys who do the fighting, the majors are kind of in the middle there and they've been around long enough. They've gotten quite a bit of education at this point, and they've got at least a decade of experience. Um, I, I frequently ask our younger officers, how many outstanding majors have you met? And they've got to, too often, it takes them a while to, so I know we have a responsibility to role model and set an example, right? Um, so to answer your question, I'm not afraid to sweat. I'm 47 years old. I'll put the work in. That's part of it. I try to think. I go back to, you know, how do we frame this problem? Then think about how we organize the team to solve problem. How do we solicit good ideas, but not waste a lot of time studying you know, the problem in a, in a, in a way that kind of hinders movement. Okay. Do we have enough information to decide? And sometimes the genius in what we do is just recognizing whether you got 40% or 70%, how much information do you need? How much risk are you willing to incur? Cause it's never going to be perfect. Right? So, you know, I got 40% of the information. This is a low risk outcome. If it goes poorly, we can move on 40%. Sometimes we need 70%, but if you wait till 100, you'll be paralyzed. You won't have enough activity. You won't get the machine moving fast enough. The system won't respond. So I'm not afraid to sweat. I, I think I try to think through problems, and I read voraciously. Um, try to learn from a lot of other people. And for me, I've got some examples of, you know, for me, Grant Grant in the Overland campaign, when he's issuing clear orders, written himself, and the stolidity, the certitude with which he says, there will be no turning back, that I'm going to keep fighting it out on this line if it takes all summer. Um, his lifelong learner, this is a guy who failed repeatedly in everything but soldiering, and was certain about soldiering, and he had a knack and a talent for it. And then finally, he had the will where he knew that it was, they were going to bleed, but he had a mission and he had the will when no one else did. So a guy like Grant inspires me. I draw inspiration from him. Uh, I draw inspiration from Churchill. I've mentioned him already, his ability to share courage, his idea that the words that would come out of his mouth could inspire people that defiance worked for, uh, you know, Britain at the time that he could, get 20-year-olds to fight the Luftwaffe over the, the channel and wear them down. It's really extraordinary, 20-year-old pilots. So, you know, I, I do. And then I've had a host of it. I mean, I've worked for the best we have. I've worked for McChrystal, Votel, uh, Townsend, McConville, Martin. Uh, I've worked for Dan Allen, when uh, Mick Nicholson. I've worked for Rodriguez. I've worked for Craig Nixon. Uh, and I, I mean, I've worked for the best we have. I work for Donahue and Carilla now. That matters, right? So, you know, what have I learned about leadership? How do I keep myself sharp? You got to keep up with those guys, not catch up. That matters too. Hmm. Sir, I'd like to do a little lightning round here at the end. Let's do it. Um, 
first question I have for you is what is one habit, routine, ritual that for you has made the biggest positive difference? So I depends on your worldview. I mean, this won't work for everybody, but uh, I do little whisper prayers throughout the day. You know, I mean, I might not get down on my knees and pray for an hour, but I can walk around and have this kind of running dialogue with, with God. Again, depends on your worldview. It might not work for you. Um, I like to exercise alone too. And most people will be like, what do you mean exercise? Yeah, I really do like to use that time to think. If I can go train for 90 minutes and just think as I'm training, you know, that, and then I read, you know, and if, if you can read, think, I mean, think about this. And this message goes out to all of us. If over the next year you can read 25 books and remember the big idea from all 25, how much better prepared are you for whatever comes, right? Yeah. So make a choice. You, I mean, you have choices. Any tips for finding time to read? I mean, that always comes up. Hey, reading is important, but normally the response from people that, that you're like, yeah, I, I want to read, but I just have trouble finding the time or making the time. Well, okay, here's a mantra. Busy doing what? I mean, busy doing what? Run an audit on your life and figure out you know, why you can't read 20 pages a day. I'm busy doing what? I know you're busy. We all are, but busy <laughs> doing what? And I think that's, uh, so for me, I always try and get 20 to 25 pages a day. And on the weekends, I go far more than that because mm. I find it very relaxing. Yeah. It allows me to chill out, right? In a, in a otherwise kind of frenetic lifestyle. I think having that 20 page goal probably makes it more uh, achievable or manageable too. It's like, I don't have to read a whole book. I just, Hey, give me 20 minutes a day. And like you said, you've looked back at the end of the year and you've read a lot of books. You got a lot of knowledge. Sure. And you're a better person. Remember one idea from every book. And yeah. again, we all reason by analogy. We go back to our mantras. Now you've got some ideas. Now you've sharpened your ideas. Now you've learned from someone else, not just your own experiences. So I'd encourage everybody to do that. Truman, our 33rd president, when he, uh, he, he said that all leaders must be readers and I buy it. Yeah. No, I'm I mean, he's just, I mean, this guy that taught himself, he's an autodidact from the ground up. Yeah. You know, sir. Um, next one, top marriage or relationship advice. So I'm not the best at this. Right. And, and my wife is a witness to this. So I think a relationship is really about accountability. When we do talk about relationships, how did I know my wife was Mrs. Wright? Well, I think it's because when she tuned me up, I would want to get back in her good graces, right? She was holding me accountable. And I don't think it's different in a small unit around here. You know, I talked about leadership as a relationship. That's not new. But when there's accountability in the relationship, when we feel responsibility to each other, when we know that we have to measure up, right? And we can get past the relationship allows you to get past the necessary confrontation when you call each other out. Part of being a good team player is looking someone in the eye and pulling the trigger once in a while, right? Um, and so, you know, I think if the relationship has accountability, if you can be honest with each other and get past the, the sort of, you know, the disagreement that happens naturally periodically when it's necessary. Right. And then I think you got to say sorry a lot. I think this, you know, marriage ain't a 50, 50 thing. It's kind of like an all or nothing thing. And if you think it's 50, 50, you might have a hard time. That's just my two cents. That's good. Uh, top parenting advice. So I've got a child with special needs who's 19 in diapers, severely disabled. And then I've got a 16 year old who's thriving. The older teenager is a boy. The 16 year old is a girl. And I think you should tell your children you love them a lot, but I think you should try and raise adults, not children. 
Okay, that's my best advice. That's good. Raise adults. Raise adults. Raise yeah. adults. Um, best advice you've ever received? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so I think I read a book by a guy named Marshall Goldsmith called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's a corporate leadership book, but it's more than that. It's just a leadership book. And if you can recognize humbly that you just don't lead yourself, that not everybody's like you, and you but you have a duty as the leader to activate this entire team. And you got to recognize as well, I mean, we're in the Army. And I think that if you understand that 10 years ago, you know, good people, I mean, that was the top priority. Today, good people is the Army's biggest challenge. 10 years from now, good people, you know, how do we continue to attract the lifeblood of the army, recruit, assess, retain talent? You know, that, that was 10 years ago. It was probably our biggest problem today. It's probably our biggest problem. And 10 years from now, it's going to be a big problem. And I've accepted that. Okay. And I think that is how the very senior leadership of the army sees, um, you know, when, when our chief says people will always be my number one priority, that's because he knows that the army's not made up of people. It is people. Yeah. I want to ask you, you've mentioned a lot of leaders yeah. that you that have shaped you, that, that kind of reference points for you. If you had to kind of pick one, I know that's hard. It's kind of a, you know, maybe an unfair question, but who's just someone who you really respect, like who maybe you go to more than others when you think about leadership? So I've got two and I'll be quick. Uh, my first company commander in 3rd Ranger Battalion, I'd been in the Army for a year and a half, had not had great examples. I went to 3rd Ranger Battalion after a year and a half at another division in our Army, and I worked for a guy named Jeff Martindale. So Martindale was a captain who was promotable, had about 10 years of service. He's the first captain in the army who ever taught me anything. And I learned more in 90 days. This guy gave me, he developed my potential in 90 days that after a year and a half in my first unit, I really felt kind of constrained. Like it wasn't meeting my expectations. Martindale recognized something in me. And to this day, we remain friends. And he, he's a retired colonel. And, and then I had a privilege when I left 2nd Brigade Combat Team here to go work for our 39th chief of staff of the army. I was General Milley's XO for 14 months. And General Milley, his ability to simplify complex problems and communicate them in clarity, it's genius. I mean, it really, if you want to see what a general officer has to do, take something as complex as the world, and he can explain it with clarity, concisely and precisely. And it's pretty extraordinary. And I was vastly oversimplified. You know, he's not trying to be a historian. He's trying to be a general. And he's trying to give great advice to the secretary of the army. He's trying to give great advice to the president or give great advice to the secretary of defense. So it's a really powerful talent that's been developed over many, many years. But uh, I learned a heck of a lot from, you know, the chairman. And last question I have for you, this is just a curiosity. You're a really good speaker. Uh, I've seen you speak uh, in other venues. I've seen you speak this past week. You really are gifted. I'm curious, is there anything you would offer terms of how you've developed that to people out there who are maybe getting wanting to get better at speaking communicating so a couple thoughts you got to prepare there's really no accidents with this you know eventually you get to the point where you have a couple stumps and you can just kind of draw from your stumps right you've got enough ammunition in your holster um 
But otherwise, I would encourage you, prepare. You know, what are the two or three things that you want to... And then there's the rest of the conversation. There's how you present. You know, so I know my game is energy. It's intensity. It's enthusiasm. I know that about me. I'm demonstrative. I'd kind of let it fly. But I also know that I got to understand who I'm speaking to, who the audience is. And, you know, if, if I'm ranking, okay, then I'll kind of let it go. I know this. If I'm sharing the floor with someone who ranks me or my boss, you know, I, I really do have to be deferential. So I do think environment matters. Preparation matters. I read a lot so you can grab a lot of ideas. There's a lot of smart people who have articulated things in very sticky ways and very memorable ways and very repeatable ways that'll help you do it. Um, and I, tell you, I already made the comment that if you get into a Q&A with someone and you've read a little bit and you can remember one idea from each of those, it, it kind of arms you as well to deal with a range of different topics. The final thing I'd say is when you're speaking to people, you know, Adam said that George Washington was one of the great actors of the age. Valley Forge sucked. Undeniable, right? I mean, 2,000 American militiamen died 20 miles from Philadelphia. You know, and the reason they weren't in Philadelphia is because Philadelphia wanted to see the revolution fail. I mean, it was just a dire time. But Adam said Washington was one of the great actors of the age. There is a degree of theater you know, if we say it's preparation, we say it's environment, we say it's uh, it's kind of uh, sharpening your ideas by learning from others through reading. Um, you know, you can, I think, also work on displaying confidence. You know, the act of. It's one thing about combat. Even when it's coming unhinged, you really do have to remain cool. And sometimes you have to act cool even when, uh, even when you really are feeling pressure. He's got both hands on the wheel. Everybody's watching. I'm going to lead him through it. The rest of the conversation is not the words coming out of my mouth. It's my behaviors right now that are going to bring calm to them. So I, I don't know. Those are just some ideas. That's great. Um, sir, thank you so much. This has been just awesome for me. I've learned so much, and, and I'm excited to watch you as you continue to progress. I, I'm frankly just excited that we have leaders like you with your perspective and your heart in, in the Army and leading at the level you are and surely the level that you'll continue to go to. Um, just wanted to give you the last word, sir, if there's anything, you know, to the leaders out there, a lot of, we've got a lot of brand new leaders. We've got a lot of middle management. We've got people that are senior. Any just parting thoughts? I want to give you the opportunity. Certainly you've already shared tons with us, so I don't know, <laughs> feel free to, to pass on that as well. But if there's anything else you'd like to say, I want to give you the opportunity. Well, the first thing I'd say thank you to all these free men and women who are still in uniform serving or who have served honorably in uniform. Um, there's no guarantees. We need you. Um, if you believe in this thing that we are, this United States of America, and you believe in this Constitution and what it stands for, you know, and it's that mission that's captured in the preamble to form a more perfect union. If that's the quest we're on, it needs to be protected. It needs to be secured in a dangerous world. Thank you for what you do. Um, if you're a soldier out there in our army right now living in these historic times, I'd encourage you. Make sure that when you wake up in the morning, you ask yourself, did I do my best today? And if the answer is no, do your best. Ask yourself if you believe in what you do and ask yourself that every day. And uh, I, th I think if we're, we're kind of on this quest together, um, we sort of owe it to ourselves to make sure that we're honest with ourselves. Did I do my best today? Do I believe in what I'm doing today? And I thank you all for what you do and 
appreciate you having me on, Cal. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There were so many takeaways that I wrote down. I just want to go over some of those to summarize many of the things that he shared with us, just some great insights on life and leadership. Every spectacular achievement is preceded by unspectacular preparation. It's just work. I love that. Talked about doing your 111th. He described mission command as if we understand what the boss wants, commander's intent in the military, then we're empowered. And if we have competent people at every area, we have a chance. And if we get the right information to the right leader at the right time through good communication, then they can make decisions. He also talked about how we don't lead ourselves. We have to approach every individual as an individual. We have to ask ourselves every day, do I believe in what I'm doing? General Work said over and over again that I'm a part of all that I've met, which all of us are. We all meet people along the way. We all learn things along the way. Some of us do that better than others, but I think it's important for us to take note of these sticky things that we can take away and take with us, these mantras that help center us when leadership and life gets tough. The commander is responsible for everything that the unit does or fails to do. That's a military concept, but I think any leader can adopt that as a mantra. I am responsible. I take ownership over my organization, my team, my family. I'm responsible for everything that we do or that we omit from doing. I love this mantra that he got from Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Do what's right, do what the boss wants, and then do what you want in that order. Move to friction. A leader's job is to move to friction. He got this from Brigadier General Marty Schweitzer. Move to friction. And then he talked about how there's that dial between hands-on and eyes-on. We don't just move to, once we move to friction, we have to assess the situation, assess the problem, frame the problem, and then figure out what we're going to do about it. I love what he said about, I know if it's uncomfortable, I know I need to do it. If it's that uncomfortable conversation, if that's that thing that you you know you need to address, that problem you know you need to spend some time, set aside some time on your calendar to solve, move to friction. He also mentioned to whom much is given, much is expected. And I love coming from someone who is a warfighter, who has legitimately helped defeat ISIS, been to combat multiple times, is a football player. He talked about how everyone needs encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement. So I encourage you today to go out, encourage your team, give them the appreciation, show them the appreciation that you have for them. When you think that you've appreciated them enough, double it, appreciate them even more. There's no person in your office, in your family, on your team that doesn't need some form of encouragement. So use your words today to build up your team. Friends, thanks so much for joining us today. If this episode resonated with you, will you reach out to me and let me know? I will share that with General Work. Also share this with a friend. We appreciate all of you that are helping us grow and are with us in this community. Go check out the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. Please join our Patreon account if you'd like to support us financially, even with just a small contribution each month. That helps us not just cover our expenses, but also is going to help us grow and impact more new leaders out there. And as you head out today, just remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.